Welcome to the 327th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I talk with journalist and friend of COVID Calls, Colleen Haggerty. And joining us are emergency manager Sarah Miller and wildland firefighter Luke Mayfield. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at its new time of 6 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, August 24th, 2021, there are 4,445,540 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. Instead of continuing to read the death statistics from individual countries, I've actually been featuring COVID metrics that people would like to think about that go beyond death totals or infection rates. And I really appreciate the many, many responses that people have sent in on these. I'd like to read a couple. These are COVID numbers that people would like to know that go beyond the death statistics. Jacqueline Wernermont who's also a friend of COVID calls and has been a guest, said, I wish we had a way to number and name the futures lost. I'd like to mourn them and say goodbye rather than feeling haunted by what almost was. Another response from Twitter user at nurse, excuse me, at nurse on the run writes, impacts would like to know the impacts on healthcare and public health, health workforce, the number who died, burned out and left the field, plan to leave and worse, the number of students that did not graduate last year or this year. Or if their hiring was modified due to the lack of clinical experience, including EMTs, medics, and therapists. These are COVID numbers that people would like to know. I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is, after working on a fire in Colorado, a firefighter dies of COVID. The author is Bill Gabbert. This appeared April 24th, 2021 in Wildfire Today. Firefighter who had been assigned to a wildfire in Colorado in 2020 died after battling COVID-19 in a hospital for six months. This comes from information released by Laramie County Fire District 2. It is with great sadness that we announce the passing of Charles Chuck Scottini, Chuck passed away peacefully with his family by his side on the morning of April 24th, 2021, after a long six-month battle with COVID-19. Chuck contracted COVID while on a wildland fire assignment in Colorado and was quickly moved to University of Utah Hospital, where he stayed for six long months trying to recover. Chuck has been a firefighter with Laramie County Fire District 2 since 1998, where he currently held the position of assistant chief. Chuck was our Mr. Fix-It, our mentor, and was a wealth of knowledge to the fire service. He will be dearly missed by all. We will release information on a memorial service at a later time, they wrote. 
The Oil City News reported that earlier this week, and again, this is April of 2021, emergency personnel in Laramie and Cheyenne had honored Assistant Chief Scottini as he was transported from Utah to hospice care in Cheyenne. Laramie County Fire District 2 was established in 1945 and protects about 1,100 square miles north of Cheyenne, Wyoming. Our sincere condolences go out to the family, friends, and co-workers of Assistant Chief Scottini. I'm going to read a second obituary today. Headline is, Irreplaceable Hart County Emergency Management Director Dies Following COVID-19 Complications. This story is by Kelly Dean, WBKO News, Bowling Green, Kentucky, and was published February 5th. 2021. Dateline Hart County, Kentucky. According to Hart County officials, the emergency management director, Carrie McDaniel, died early Thursday morning, February 4th. 65-year-old Carrie McDaniel was hospitalized after being diagnosed with the virus, his wife, Vicki McDaniel, said. He had been moved out of the COVID unit that week, and doctors thought he was improving when suddenly he took a turn for the worse. Around 3 a.m., Thursday, and this is early February of 2021. Around 3 a.m. that Thursday, Vicky said he passed away after complications with COVID-19. He's really going to be missed in the position he held here in the county and all of the titles and the hats he wore, said Hart County Judge Executive Joe Choate. Born and raised in Hart County, McDaniel retired from his position with the Environmental Protection Cabinet after 27 years. However, the man passionate about his hometown, took up the position of emergency management director. He was also the director for 911 and Hart County Solid Waste. He would do anything he could to accommodate the constituents of Hart County, you know, if there were issues that were going on, said retired Judge Executive Terry Martin. First District Magistrate for Hart County, Gary Gardner, worked alongside McDaniel for years. He was just top-notch in every regard, he said. Kerry is going to be hard to replace because he wore so many hats. Martin added that McDaniel's work ethic was unlike any other. So many people relied on him. He just was a great, great, great person that can't be replaced. Yeah, nobody could do things and know things that he knows, said Martin. Judge Executive Joe Choate described McDaniel as selfless. One of the great attributes of Kerry's was whenever I came in and he would tell me, he said, look, when something goes wrong or goes bad, you throw me out there in it he said about McDaniel's willingness to take on anything. Now, a void, tremendously felt throughout South Central Kentucky. Now, a void is felt throughout South Central Kentucky as a man who proved love for his town through actions is now called to do the same in a new home. He loved Hart County and anything he could do for the betterment of Hart County and their folks, he did it, said Choate. McDaniel is survived by his wife, Vicki McDaniel, of 39 years, his veteran son, Curtis Allen McDaniel, and his wife, Tara McDaniel, and his grandson. Vicki is pleading with the community to wear a mask in honor of McDaniel. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today. And this one has been a couple of months in the making, and I'm really excited that we're able to bring these guests together. Let me introduce them to you. First is Colleen Haggerty. 
Returning to COVID calls, Colleen is a freelance journalist telling narrative stories through video, print, and social mediums. Much of her work reflects how global communities are reckoning with our changing climate, social dynamics, technologies, and politics. You can find her bylines across BBC News outputs and on Vox, High Country News, U.S. News and World Report, Business Insider, and others. She also has a weekly newsletter about disasters. Sarah Miller is a certified emergency manager who is currently a consultant and the interim chair of the Homeland Security Emergency Management Program at Pierce College. She most recently served as the emergency management coordinator for the 16 cities, one tribe, and one island of South King County, Washington. Previously, she was the emergency manager for the city of Auburn, Washington for nine years. Her 30-plus years of public service includes 12 years as a public safety dispatcher and nine years as a search and rescue volunteer. She holds a master's of public administration degree in emergency management, is a graduate of the National Emergency Management Advanced Academy, and has completed doctoral work in homeland security, terrorism, and public policy. She's currently working on her PhD dissertation on technology and emergency management. And my third guest is Luke Mayfield. Luke is currently the fire program manager for Mystery Ranch Backpacks, the current vice president of the grassroots wildland firefighters and an AD firefighter in Region 1. Previously, Luke spent 18 seasons with the United States Forest Service. Luke worked in four regions, seven forests, and the majority of his career was spent on interagency hotshot crews. Luke resigned in 2019 as an assistant hotshot superintendent and supervisory forestry technician. Colleen Haggerty, Sarah Miller, and Luke Mayfield, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thank you for having us. So the, the way I generally start is to find out where people are calling from and find out kind of what the pandemic is looking like there today. I'm going to start with you, Luke, on that question. I'm in Bozeman, Montana, and right now um, Gallatin County is, is a hot spot, I would say, um, for the state, just with the amount of tourism that we get, uh, out-of-state visitors and otherwise, and uh, outdoor recreation. And any sense of the vaccination process there, Luke? Is it um, something that, uh, I know you don't go down the street asking everybody if they're vaccinated, but are you able to get a sense of, of what the rates might be there? Uh, no, I'd have to look into it. I mean, it's a pretty mixed bag. It's Montana. Um, I think people have their own thoughts on a lot of things, uh, the vaccine being one of them. So I'd say it's a mixed bag, probably in the 60% range, but that'd be a total guess on my part. Sarah, let me bring you in on this same question about where you're calling from and the pandemic there. So I'm in the Seattle metro area, and they, they just announced today that that our our county alone has administered 3 million vaccines. So that's somewhere probably shy of 1.5 million people because things get complicated, people skip, whatever. But but it's somewhere, I mean, it's more than a million. Um, and we have, so it, it's a very large percentage of our population, but there's, there's some really, there's some places where people are absolutely experiencing vaccine hesitancy. My zip code is one of them. Um, we have some of the lower numbers in the county right here where I live. Um, but the upshot of all that is that uh, and I looked this morning in anticipation of this question because I wasn't sure, but our case counts are high, but our deaths are very, very low across the county. 
Um, see a number a count on the on the negative tests. Um, they're getting they're prioritizing the positive tests, but our, our case counts are high, definitely surging. Um, but our death rate is very low compared to what it was last spring. So that's good. It is good. Thank you for that report. And this would be speculation, but I want to ask anyway, do you, how much of that do you owe to cultural factors and how much to the to the fact that um, a couple of places really experienced the pandemic first in the United States, and it was, uh, you know, the Bay Area of California and, you know, kind of greater Seattle metro area in Washington were kind of some of the first places that were um, coming to grips with the pandemic. Do you think that has any impact or is it just too long ago and this is the sort of vaccine uptake is a separate issue? I think that remained in people's collective memories. They, this being Seattle, we're, we're pretty tight with science as on a general basis and and people were ready and anxious and wanted the vaccines. Like they, I was working in a mass vaccination clinic for the city of Seattle the day that the emergency use authorization happened for 12 year olds. We were not planning to vaccinate 12 year olds that day. Our plans changed as they lined up outside the door because people wanted vaccines here. Um, and and the, the, the tough part was that when we had the greatest demand is when we could get the least supply. And by the time we could get the, the big supply, people had already gone all over the place to get vaccinated. Um, people went to other counties where the rates were much lower. Uh, people drove three or four hours to go get vaccinated because they could find vaccines and then they came back home. So, so there, there's a bit of both of that. I think the collective memory of, whoa, the first cases in the country happened right here. Um, the first reported cases in the country, because, you know, there are probably more, but but they were right here. They were one county to the north, and so I think people lived with that memory and and with what that did in our county right off the bat. So late February last year, when nursing homes um, were experiencing extremely high case counts, um, fire departments and police departments were being quarantined because they didn't know that they had been exposed. Like that that memory did not go away for people, I don't think, and so they were beating on the doors wanting vaccines. I wonder, Sarah, if you wouldn't mind sharing with us maybe one of the strongest memories of this time period for you. Yeah, when my sister's entire family got COVID. It had nothing to do with anything else, but 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 that that's that gut punch. You're like, people are being as careful as they can, but they work in critical infrastructure and they were exposed at work and 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 their whole family. Like somebody got sick at her house and she kept her entire family in her house some of whom didn't live there because by then they're like, oh, well, we're all exposed. We're, we're going to get it. And she kept them all there. And it was, I don't know, three weeks before wow. everybody got the all clear and even longer. It was a month for one of them. And so that, that, that resonated uh, really quick across our family. Thanks for sharing that. Luke, I want to ask you that same question. If you don't, don't mind, it's kind of an impossible question to answer, but is there a memory that stands out for you in this past 18 months? Uh, for me, yeah, my step-grandfather was the first fatality uh, east of the Cascades in Quincy, Washington. So having having that happen and then, uh, yeah, just kind of the, the memory of the world shutting down relatively quickly. I'm sorry to hear about your grandfather. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Um, 
Colleen, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring you in now and um, ask you first if tell us where you're calling from and what's looking like there, and and then also this same question about sharing a memory. I've had you on several times, but I've never asked you this. Sure. And the first time I was on, actually, I was also where I am today. So I was in Pennsylvania at the time, almost exactly a year ago. I'm back here now. And I I was looking back, I remember I was talking about how high the cases were here. And when you look today, they are significantly higher. I mean, it's, it's more than double what they were this time last year. So it all goes to what your perspective of high is and how that has changed over the past year we've had. But I will say at the same time, Pennsylvania has seen an uptick in vaccinations this month compared to last. So there there has been some progress on that front. And then, yeah, let me think of a memory. I mean, for me, I think a, a big moment was the first time I went out reporting um, as this was all sort of happening, you know, the first week of March, it was a lot of work I had been planning to do that was being canceled, that, you know, travel was being rebooked for a few weeks later. Of course, that did not work out. But I had gone, I think it was the first weekend after the the speech that was given by President Trump sort of saying, we're this is real and everything needs to change. Um, I'd gone to a community in Los Angeles where a lot of unhoused residents were protesting and they were actually going and moving into some vacant houses. Um, and they were saying, you know, we, we can't be in shelters. There aren't plans for us. We have nowhere to go. You're telling us not to be outside, but you're not giving us other options. And I think it was a really big moment for me in realizing how unprepared we were and how many people's you know, just just we're going to be in these really difficult situations and the support that that just was not there for people at this really critical moment. And I think that's stuck out to me because certainly it's something we've continued to see as the months have gone by. When would that have been? I think it was. March 14th, it would have okay. been. Um, and I, I just right. remember it was, you know, it, it was a fairly large group of people. It was a press conference and it was just no one knew how to talk to each other even, you know, no one knew how close to get. We were outside, but then it started raining in Los Angeles. <laughs> so no one knows what to do with that on a good day, but we, we went inside. It It was just, it was so strange on so many levels. And I mean, just really, I remember going home after that and just wondering the next time I was going to talk to to someone in person even. So let's get an update from you, Colleen. Thank you for, for sharing that and that detail you said at the end. Like we didn't know how far to stand away from each other. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that we were operating with that kind of total cognitive dissonance as much as we've habituated ourselves to it now. It really that really sticks out to me. Um so what's happening with your newsletter? Tell us about that. Uh, we should get an update on that and make sure everybody can find it. And then we're going to talk about some of um, your reporting, which then brings us back um, into Sarah and Luke's areas of expertise. Yes. Well, thank you. Um, I, I actually launched my newsletter in April of last year, and it was something that 
you know, I, I just felt like there were a lot of stories like the one that, that I've been covering that just weren't being told or weren't being told in as much detail or getting as much context as maybe they deserved at this moment. So it focuses on disasters and kind of looking a lot at the politics, policies, and people that are shaping them and are being shaped by these events. So I've going over a year strong now. Um, and I've just been writing a lot in recent weeks, kind of more about policies. I was digging in a bit on FEMA's BRIC program and more recently on the lack of coverage that's been in the news around disaster anniversaries and kind of looking at, at what that means for communities that were hit by some of these, you know, record-breaking events last year and have fallen so quickly out of the public conscious because, there's just so many other communities that are going through those same things again now this summer. I, I read that that piece, and I'm glad you mentioned it. And you write in there, so you're sort of thinking about all of these really you know, record-setting disasters that happened mm-hmm. last year. And you wrote, these absences surprised me, considering how common disaster anniversary coverage has been in the national newsrooms I've worked in throughout my career. In fact, it was often difficult for me to get work commissioned on an impacted region until that date. So that's one sort of way that the disaster news cycle has organized itself, and now you're seeing something different? Yes, it... It was a strange newsletter to write because it was something that always frustrated me a little bit where I, or more than a little bit at times, I mean, I I would want to go somewhere and and report on what people were experiencing there. I always try to sort of keep in contact with people when these events do happen and certainly understanding that news coverage does tend to fall off and the repercussions that has for communities who, you know, still need aid or still need pressure put on politicians, people looking at what's happening there to make sure that the recovery is equitable and that there is action being put behind the words. Um, But this year, it's, it's certainly been different. I mean, I had just done some reporting on the derecho that had gone across the Midwest last year. And you know, talking to my editors about, well, there's going to be a bunch of anniversary coverage. What's something new we can add here? What's something important for people to understand if they're only going to read this one article? And then when it came out, the anniversary day of when that storm had passed across Iowa, there just wasn't a lot in the national media. I mean, and, and local media has done an incredible job there, but it's recognizing that the national media attention does tend to put that extra pressure on politicians. It tends to get those recovery dollars and aid dollars. And it it means a lot to people in communities as well to know that they're not isolated through this. I mean, that has been something that I've heard everywhere I have gone is that people feel forgotten and they feel like even maybe 20 minutes away from their hometown in a lot of these cases, people have no idea what they went through and have maybe stopped thinking about it. I, I think it's a really, um, I think it's a really good insight because it's not just um, the matter of marking a historical date. And there's historians like myself around to help us do that and fine, but it actually, particularly a, a year or two after still serves a valuable political function um, of agenda setting for recovery. And so if we're starting to see, and I don't know if it's COVID related, we're going to have to spend some time thinking about the causality mm-hmm. of this. Newsrooms are stretched. There's a COVID fatigue, which has settled in certainly. 
Um, and so how that's impacting the way people think about other disaster recovery, um, and particularly seeing these rainfalls that have just happened in Tennessee and throughout the Northeast, um, that's no small thing. I was, Sarah, I want to give you a chance to comment on that because this is your area. I wonder what you think about. I don't know if you saw that piece that, that Colleen wrote, but sort of this issue of the problem of remembering older disasters in the middle of another disaster. Um, it's a lot of memory work to do, but it's no small thing. It isn't, but it's historically something I say to the historian, but it's something that we we don't do a good job of. This is how we keep making the same mistakes over and over, is we don't look at the historical perspective of whatever happened before. And we could learn uh, from that. We observe that, but then we don't we we don't really grasp that. And and right now I, I think that it's it's fair to say that people are just tired. Um, it's one thing to to be engaged in a disaster for a for a finite period of time and then go back to your normal world. And when you do that, you can then spend some time reflecting on the disaster and comparing it to the old disasters. But but we haven't had a chance to do that uh, in almost two years now. Well, a year and a half. We, there's been no ability to just stop and take a minute and look back because we're still right in the middle of it. And so we absolutely lose that. And in doing so, we lose the ability to capture lessons or make some of those improvements that we ought to be able to make. It's more powerful in the disaster space for emergency managers to talk about history than historians. And I absolutely appreciate um, your sort of uh, underlining that that importance. And again, it's not it's not just because we want to you know have a list of disasters to talk about. It's it's actually still serving this this quite important function, I think, of recovery, but also planning. For the next one, and and Colleen, um, you wrote a piece uh, in May that appeared in Business Insider. It came out May fifth, and um, the headline was "Emergency Management Professionals Are Burning Out After Handling Record-Breaking Disasters for a Year Straight." I think that's the story that brought you and Sarah together. So, I wonder if you could say a little bit about the story and um, and bring Sarah in a little bit, you know, so we can get a, a sense of the issues that you were trying to cover there. Sure. Well, while I was covering disasters over the past year, I kept hearing from a lot of people that, you know, there there were the challenges that each compounding disaster was bringing. There was, of course, COVID-19 happening. There was, you know, maybe whether it was fires or hurricanes. But then there was also just the fact that people hadn't gotten a break. I mean, like Sarah was just saying, it's it's been relentless for a lot of people. And I think we were hearing about that a lot for people in some frontline professions, um, deservedly so. But I felt like we weren't really hearing about it for emergency management professionals who were playing this huge role. And I mean, in May, and as I was reporting this story, these are people who are coordinating largely the vaccine effort in a lot of communities. So it's not it's people who are directly impacting you know the trajectory of this virus and having such a critical role and i just felt like people weren't maybe aware of who was in charge of that weren't aware of what those people were being put through and i had sort of put something out on twitter i was curious to see if people responded and i mean 
I think it's the largest response I've I've ever received to anything I've sort of thrown uh, out on Twitter. You, to, you tapped to into start. emergency management Twitter. It's a it's a formidable. Yes, it really is. Um, I mean, I was hearing from people all over all over the world, and unfortunately, this was sort of a U.S. focus for this piece, but it it speaks to the the commonality of the issue. And I mean, I, I heard from people in large cities. I heard from someone who is pretty much the entire department for where they live. And, you know, that, that person said to me, I don't, I can't take a day off and I can't burn out because there's no one waiting in line to sort of step in and and help me out. I'm, I'm it. And my community needs me. And it, it was really, I mean, even more sort of, shocking than I was expecting when I had sort of first started talking to people, first pitched the idea. I just was really taken aback by the lack of support a lot of people were receiving and just how they were pushing through after just, again, a relentless year. I think it's probably worth noting that, uh, and you point this out in the piece, that um, we've never seen an emergency management activation of this scale maybe of this duration in a few places, but even the duration at this point would be unprecedented. So um, Sarah, let's let's bring you in because you're quoted in, in the piece. And, and one of the things you say in the article is I, um, there's a sense among emergency managers that they shouldn't be taking a break when there's still an emergency. But you say our bodies and our minds never planned for a year-long emergency and then a, a year and and then some. Give us some context here for this. I think a lot of it goes to something that Colleen just said. Like in a lot of places, there's one emergency manager or a halftime emergency manager. Even in when you were reading that that memorial piece about the emergency manager who was also the solid waste person and the something else and the 911. And a lot of places don't make it a position even for financial reasons primarily. Um, and, and so when you're, when you're trying to look at, wow, if I take a break, there literally is no one to do my job. If I leave town for a week, everything is going to pile up. There's no one for me to even train because it's just me. And we've seen a dramatic brain drain now in the last six to eight months of this people retiring, people switching careers, people desperate, and by people, I mean people in emergency management. Um, And it's across the spectrum because it's not just government emergency management. Hospitals have emergency managers who are at their wits end. Um, uh, It is, we collectively don't put enough value in this function. It, It stays below the surface until something happens. And, and when something happens, one person is not enough to deal with it. Uh, and, and there's no fixing that in real time. And in this last year, even, um, typically, when you, if you are a city and you need help, you can call your neighbor cities under mutual aid. You can reach out to the state. They can find you some people. If, if it's really big, the state can reach to other states and find you some people. There were no people this year. We we depleted our resources across the entire country, and we still are. We haven't fixed that issue. Um, and part of what ends up happening, then even reaching out to private sector consulting companies, 
they can't find people either because the people who get out, they get out hard. They're like, nope, I'm done. I don't want to do anything related to this anymore. I'm going to take up knitting or make cloth mask or something, but I'm done. And, and so what the part of that, it has opened up some newer jobs for people, which shouldn't be entry level jobs, but are. And that mm. causes a whole other level of stress where you're like, oh, hi, we see you just graduated. You have a degree. Welcome to the team. You're now a division chief, a section chief in our ICS structure. Good luck with that. <laughs> and I've seen it repeatedly. And that causes a whole different level of stress that people are not prepared for. And exacerbates that burnout um, because they don't they they don't have a support network to even turn to. They haven't even made friends that they can call and yell at on the phone because they're just frustrated. And and I think that that we have to elevate the position. But we from a public safety perspective, there's very few of us. If you even look in in my city, there's 150 police officers. There's I don't know 150 or 200 firefighters. Um, a, there's one, well, there were three emergency management people, but two of them have retired in the last, uh, four months. And now there's one, uh, and he's a little stressed out because now it's mm. just him and they're trying to replace them, but money and priorities, and there's lots of hiring and it, it's kind of starting to snowball and I don't know where it stops. Just want to give a reminder that you're listening to COVID calls. We're talking about burnout and emergency management and firefighting, wildland firefighting today with Luke Mayfield, Sarah Miller, and Colleen Haggerty. Luke, I want to bring you in on this as well. Um, you're in wildland fire, not emergency management, um, but from the public's perspective, these are the people that show up when we need help. I think most people in the public probably don't differentiate <laughs> too much of who gets off the who gets off the truck or who's on the who's on the radio. But um, can tell us a little bit about your work and your organization, and then also you were fighting fires this just now, right? I mean, just this summer as well. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about some of these how these burnout issues are playing among firefighters. Yeah, I mean, burnout's the the primary factor of why I'm in the position I'm in now um, in private industry. The organization that I'm involved with is the Grassroots Wildland Firefighters. It's a 501c3 nonprofit. I'm the current vice president. Um, and we're looking to address um, a paradigm shift and a change in the way federal wildland firefighters who are actually titled forestry technicians and super supervisory forestry technicians and how the system is built and how it treats them. So we're concentrating on four pillars. Number one, classification, uh, pay and benefits. Number two, comprehensive health and well-being. Uh, number three, the need for an expanded workforce. And then number four, looking at what a national fire service looks like versus two agencies and five um, 
or the United States Department of Agriculture, the Department of Interior, and then the five land management agencies below them that are all tasked with the same jobs, but are operating on different systems a lot of times um, and not very many crosswalks. Um, and what was the, the other question you had? I'm sorry. Well, just sort of getting a sense from you, and, th and thanks for telling us about that organization and its goals, but getting a sense from you of what it's, what it's like for firefighters right now who are in the second wildfire season also trying to manage COVID in the midst of yeah. doing their job. Yeah, I mean, I think at this point, you know, last summer COVID was fresh in everybody's mind, and I think people were on top from an incident management team perspective to a module perspective and a forest in the district perspective with uh, cleaning supplies, masks, social distancing, operating as a module of one. I, I honestly think, and just with the fire environment and the amount of fire that's on the ground throughout the West and that we're in a planning level of five uh, on a second back-to-back -back year of historic fires, people are burned out and they're just trying to do the best they can when they don't have enough people, they don't have enough resources. Um, a year into this pandemic, the supply chain and the logistics available to support the people on the ground are broken. Um, you know, getting porta potties and paper towels and caterers and adequate food for people that are on the ground is, is difficult for a lot of folks. Um, and with that being said, I think people have also found ways to treat folks better on the ground, allowing them to potentially get hotel rooms or, or figure out meals that aren't the normal way of being in a, a thousand person incident command post and align with everybody. So, and figuring out other ways to process, um, whether you're bringing crews in, checking them in, or demobbing them, how to do that without actually bringing them in, do it remotely. So there's been positives uh, with the poor stuff, but a year plus into COVID and living in that reality, people are burned out on top of what is, you know, an environmental emergency across the West with towns being wiped off the map and, and not enough resources to reactively suppress fires and proactively manage the land is difficult. Colleen, just come back to the um, your article. One of the things you point out in there is, first of all, it's, it was hard to get. It's hard to get emergency managers. Uh, they feel restrained, I think, to speak openly about the pressures that they're that they're under. I mean, I think it's worth pointing out for our audience how lucky we are to actually have. Um, an emergency working emergency manager and wildland firefighter both willing to speak out um, about the pressures in in the fields that they're in. But Colleen, could you say a little bit more about you know what you uncovered in that sense in the piece? Because I think it opens a way for a discussion for what kind of reforms might be on the table. Sure, and I'll I'll say I I ended up giving a lot of people anonymity for that article. I had an even harder time when I was trying to speak with wildland firefighters about the pressures that they're under. Um, you know, I, I really was striking out a lot, hearing from a lot of people who were on the ground, both for the logistical reasons, of course, that they are busy, they are out there right now. I, they don't have time to speak to a journalist, and I completely understand that. 
But also, I think for both, there's certainly a fear of retribution. Um, There's a a large concern, not only, you know, professionally where they aren't supposed to speak to the media, but that they people don't want to be on the record saying I'm burned out. Um, You know, I, I think a lot of people told me these are cultures that are changing, but really entrenched within there is kind of you sleep when you're dead and you have a job to do and you go out there and do it and you don't necessarily admit the toll that it's taking on you. So that was something I absolutely came across. I mean, I I know with some emergency managers as well, they were saying they are they might not be the face of COVID-19 response. A lot of people don't know that they are doing that work, but they have seen others who have been put on the chopping block when there is something that goes wrong, when a response is seen to have been done poorly, you know, that that higher officials who maybe even were the ones responsible for some decisions, they will take that out on emergency managers. So I really heard that from a lot of people, that there was a large fear of retribution, a feeling that, they're doing the best they can with limited resources and their jobs are just constantly on the line here. And, you know, I, I think it's also worth noting that for both of these roles, um, the people who I was speaking with were saying, you know, they're, they're not making a ton of money a lot of time. They're exhausted and they don't feel like there's a lot of, of options for them to, you know, maybe step out of line. They, this isn't a job that they have the savings or support to be able to step away from, even though it's something that they're recognizing is taking that significant toll on their mental and physical health. Sarah, I just want to give you a chance to comment on any of that and point out um, you're here. We know your name, you're speaking. So <laughs> it's not everyone. Um, but um, I think you're especially articulate, and I know that also from social media that you are in talking about these issues. But I wonder, um, just anything that Colleen was was saying there you want to react to? Yeah, a couple of things, and actually something you said, Scott, because you pointed out that both Luke and I are here, and Luke and I also independently pointed out that we don't work for the government anymore directly. And that makes a huge difference in our ability or our comfort comfort level was speaking out on issues. Um, I actually was at a place and one of your anonymous sources came up to me, Colleen, and said, I was so excited to see you in that article because it needed names attached to it, but I couldn't give mine because then, then my boss would know that I'm burned out and I'm tired and they might fire me or they might discipline me or, or, or it's, there's fear there. There's fear for jobs. Um, some of the folks I've seen, someone said to me recently, I hate this field. I'm done with emergency management, but I only have five years till retirement and I can't learn a new job in that time. And that, I mean, that's a very sad, like, that's a sad place to come from, but it's there. It's very much there. And it's just under the surface for a lot of people. And I think part of it is, um, even when I worked for government, yeah, I didn't get paid a lot. But I would rather than get a raise, I would rather have been able to hire someone else, like add another body to to our fold, because that paying me more money does not add more hours to the day. Like I they actually just upped the pay at my old job significantly because they couldn't be competitive in the marketplace. But but giving me more pay 
and no more hours in the day and no more bodies doesn't give me any time to spend it or do anything useful with it except stuff at the bank. So maybe I can retire early. And, and I think that that, this, this idea that, um, and a wildland firefighters have an even worse, like their pay is ridiculously low. And I'm sure Luke has comments on that, but it is, we collectively as a society, uh, we don't value the people who are doing some of the hardest work. And you look at what nurses are going through right now. And, and there's some great similarities there. I have a relative who just got out of the nursing field because he realized he's in a high COVID area. It was miserable and he could go to McDonald's and make more money than he was making. And he didn't go to McDonald's. He went somewhere else. He went, this is dumb. I don't have to put my life on the line every day for this pittance of money. We, we don't collectively as a society value the people who are out there doing the frontline work. And, and arguably, most people don't even know that there are emergency managers because there's one as opposed to the 150 cops in the same town. And so I think that plays a lot into how, how, our, how our decision makers view us and how the public fails to view us. And, and we don't get that elevate that that elevated status that we need to be able to fight for jobs and fight for pay. Uh, Luke, let me bring you in on that. Thank you, Sarah, for making those points and just see any reaction you might have on that, Luke. And I think to this same question as, as well, which is why is it hard to get wildland firefighters to talk about the changes that they need, the kinds of ones that the grassroots organization that you're involved with is advocating for? I think a lot of times, I mean, we're taught and brought up to be quiet professionals. And from a press perspective, you're taught to, if somebody wants to talk to you, to tell them to talk to your supervisor and leave as soon as possible. But I do think that people are starting to speak up. I mean, that was one of the intents of grassroots wildland firefighters was to provide a platform and a voice for people to speak, whether it was publicly or anonymously. Um, and, uh, you know, at the end of a season, people are tired, especially a seasonal workforce. Once they've made what they're going to make during those, you know, what was a fire season, what is now a fire year, then it's time to decompress, be with your families if you have them or go enjoy whatever hobby it is that you're funding with your wildland firework. And you're just kind of gone and checked out and hopefully checking in on your friends. And it's I mean, it's a system that was built, you know, maybe the 50s, maybe as late as the 30s, but it was based off of an expendable workforce and a fire season that only lasted two to three months. Now it lasts almost 12 months and the need for folks lasts 12 months. Um, and you're coming in as a GS3 at $13.45 an hour after 18 years. Um, in fire, I resigned at 23 bucks an hour and I relied like nobody's going to say this and we don't say it publicly, but I needed the West to be burning. Like I needed those overtime hours. I needed hazard pay and I needed overtime. And the only way I got that is if I was on a hillside that was burning because the 48,000 a year that was my hourly uh, equivalent did not cover my daughter's preschool or my mortgage or any of the other things that you need in life. Like I needed to double that 
double that through overtime and hazard pay and I needed to be gone. I, there was no option of saying, I'm going to take two weeks off for a vacation. And it just, you know, after 10 years, 12 years, 15 years, 18 years, it works when you're young, when you can have a ton of fun in the winter. But as you get older and you grow up and you get responsibilities, then it becomes a stress. Those family uh, responsibilities and financial responsibilities um, require you to be gone when you no longer want to be gone which starts to create the burnout, the mental health problems, the suicide problems, the uh, divorce problems, mental health. Like I was pretty, you know, always before a season and after a season, I'd say that I was depressed with, uh, you know, I guess for lack of ever clinical, but like suicidal ideations, like maybe my family would be better off with a life insurance check versus me being around and just having to have those fire checks. And and it just is kind of a really crappy cycle where you start to self-medicate and, and you're just gone, gone, gone. So yeah, it's got to catch up and people need to recognize that emergency managers in all facets um, and there's multiple occupations that, that need this address, but the compensation has to be there to where you're not forced to always respond and feel like you always have to be respond. And the system needs to be in place to be able to backfill folks. Just a quick reminder that you're listening to COVID calls. We're having a discussion about stress and fatigue among first responders, emergency managers today with Sarah Miller, Luke Mayfield, and Colleen Haggerty. Colleen, I want to bring you back in, particularly given what we just heard um, from Sarah and Luke, which uh, is just hard to hear, honestly, that this is how society treats people who are there to keep the worst from happening to them. and into their property. I can't help but think, I mean, a part of that, you know, Luke was, both Luke and Sarah sort of alluding to this idea, and Luke was talking specifically about this idea that there used to be sort of a fire season, a few months, and now it's become a sort of year-long thing. So so part of this seems like a sort of professional structure that's geared for a world that doesn't exist anymore, and we haven't caught up to that. Part of it also, I wonder, is about just the the way that society and and I think media frames this, I'm not blaming you, Colleen, but I think media frames disasters as sort of a moment in which heroism emerges. And we never ask the hero how much to get paid, right? It's they're they're doing something which is uh, that others of us can't do. And so it's not like when we talk about, well, how did your tax accountant do? Well, he he did the job and he got paid. But we don't ask those kind of questions about a firefighter or an emergency manager. I can't help but wonder if that doesn't play in here as well, which involves because it's then it's hard. Like, because who wants to demythologize their their job, right? And, but actually, to talk about it in terms of like, no, this is what I need to be paid, and this is the safety that I need and security for my family. There's a tension there that I don't know how we how we address, but I think you got to it a bit in your in your article as well, and I'm sure people you spoke to must have raised that issue with you. Yeah, you know, it's it's something that came up in while I was covering both of these fields. And it's certainly not to say that a lack of of understanding or recognition is, you know, the driver of burnout in these incredibly difficult professions. But I do think 
we've touched on it a few times here. I mean, a, a lot of people, the general public don't really understand, I think, even a wildland fighter, firefighter, what that job looks like. You know, I, I see a lot of people saying, you know, they're, it's not just you show up and you're putting out a fire. I mean, there's so many people involved in the logistical aspects of it. There's the work being done on the ground looks different depending on different fires. I mean, people don't understand what these roles actually entail. They certainly don't understand the the structure of the job itself and the payment, the hours, all of that that goes into shaping what it looks like to be in these careers. And I, I definitely think that is a part of it. And I mean, one thing that stood out to me a lot when I was speaking with people is they were talking about just how difficult it has been. And part of the frustration was that of course, there's a lot we can't change in this specific moment with the fires in the West or with COVID-19. But there's money being put out there, right? There's money that the government is allocating to certain areas, and it just never felt like it was going to them. So it wasn't just that the public wasn't, you know, stepping out on their balconies and applauding emergency managers or firefighters at night as they were for doctors or other frontline professionals, it was that they weren't seeing any sort of support coming in from the people who did even recognize the jobs that they were doing, you know, who were sending that work to them, who were tasking them with these insurmountable jobs over the past year. So I think that was just a, a massive source of, of frustration is that, you know, okay, they're not maybe getting the, the accolades publicly, people don't know but they're also not getting any sort of recognition that this year has been different or in terms of wildland firefighting, that these years have been different. You know, there, there just hasn't been the policy shift to line up with the shift in the jobs. Well, obviously everything needs to be on the table. Uh, disasters uh, sometimes function as moments where policies get reexamined. Um, in which there's a, and the media plays a crucial role here, and hopefully academia in support. But it's really the frontline professionals who also have to be advocates for for those reforms. And with that in mind, I guess Sarah, I want to come back back to you. Um, what reforms do you think? I mean, can you prioritize a little bit the fifty state um, and territorial? you know, operation center deployment will eventually end. There will be a moment of reckoning. What needs to change for emergency management and how much of that can be driven inside the profession itself? Well, I think that a lot of it probably has to be driven inside. There's, I'm a policy wonk. So I see, I see possible policy solutions for lots of things, but they require, they require, I, I love the name of your group, Lucas, because grassroots, it requires grassroots action by people who've been there but that's hard to do. Um, emergency management is ridiculously political. It gets tied up in the political whims of whoever is in office at whatever level of government. It doesn't matter if you're working for a city, if you're working for a school district, if you're working for the federal government. We have this weird, like, we float this ocean of, of politics because disasters are weirdly political. And, and partially because there's a lot of money attached to them. If you have a big enough disaster, the big checkbook in the sky opens up and sends you money and you can somehow rebuild from that. You don't get that on wild and fire, weirdly. 
Um, you get the small checkbook in the sky that pays for some of the costs, but none of the rebuilding costs. And so we have these weird policies that mash up that don't serve our people that well. We don't, we don't even have a common understanding across the country of what an emergency manager or emergency management professional is. If you, if you go to Bozeman and you say, who's the emergency manager and what they do, I guarantee it's different than what someone in Boise, Idaho or Anchorage, Alaska or Seattle, Washington, it's vastly different. They have different standards. They have different requirements. Um, if you ask a firefighter what level of certification they have, and they say, I'm a firefighter one, all the firefighters go, oh, I know what that is. And they all go out their merry way and they know because there is some sort of standard. And we we struggle with that in emergency management because we we don't have anything like that. And and our jobs vary dramatically from, from, from city to city within a state, from state to state. It's just they're all over the place. And so some sort of recognition of what that is, some sort of recognition that um, we are, in fact, greatly involved in public safety. We are often relegated to something else, um, which is very familiar to me because I started my career in 911, which is usually designated uh, for for in retirement, it's a secretary position, um, and it is so not that. Some states have been successful in getting that changed, but it is, but though that recognition, and we don't have an emergency management, the strong voice that uh, fire and police often do because they have very large, robust unions. They, I was having this conversation with someone firefighters, fire departments have existed since the time of Benjamin Franklin. They've had a long time to get organized and to be on the same page. And emergency management isn't there. We're nowhere near where Ben Franklin was. And, and so we lag behind and we have robust discussion, uh, which can sound like a lot like arguing sometimes about what we are and what we do and how that should look in a community, because there is no answer that is universal. And there's, there's a growing push to, have, to do something about that to have some sort of baseline standard that says, if you're going to be an emergency manager, you, you need to be able to do these things and understand these functions. Um, I, and that's a tough thing. A lot of people treat emergency management as a second career. They retired after 20 years of public safety and they're like, oh yeah, emergency management, that'd be a great retirement gig. I can do that. I did, a, I, I rode a fire truck. I drove a police car for 20 years. I can do emergency management but they don't have the basic skill set of mitigation. They don't know what that means. They don't know how to write grants. There's, there's a lack of understanding, even from our, our peers, of what we do and why we do it. And, and we have to do a better job of selling ourselves to everybody, but we also have to do a better job of selling ourselves to, to the people who make decisions about funding, uh, about headcount. Um, we, we have really at every level in the emergency management world become highly dependent on federal funding. We say every day, all disasters are local disasters, but we expect someone else to fund them at the local level. And that doesn't, it's not sustainable. And we're very much finding out that's not sustainable. Um, we, we have to, we have to make that switch at the local level because it is a local problem. Whatever bad thing just happened is a local issue. It started local. It's going to end local. And it has to be supported locally. And, and a lot of our communities are not able to do that adequately. And right now, there's nobody to come help them. Luke, let me give you a, a 
a chance just to follow Sarah there. Anything you wanted to react to in what she said and, and maybe translate it into the kind of wildland fire reforms that you think think might be necessary? One, I mean, for example, the biggest infrastructure bill since World War II is moving, I think, last time I checked, moving maybe through Congress. Um, is that an opportunity? Are there things in there for wildland fire? I mean, where are these reforms going to come from? And I'm particularly interested, you know, Sarah talking about what can come from within the, the profession, like the people doing the work, and what can't. And that sometimes gets a little a little confusing and exhausting, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, I we've had discussions with people at the Washington office level about what can be done administratively, but then it's it's on us, you know, grassroots and boots on the ground and and people doing the job to push for the legislative change that allows for the funding for the administrative uh, portions of it to be enacted on the ground. Um, as far as the infrastructure bill, there's parts that have been a lot of the issues that we're advocating for aren't new. They've been around for 30 plus years or at least recognized by folks. I think we've done a great job of highlighting them and putting, uh, you know, tweaks or changes that match the current environment. Um, but we were able to provide um, assistance in that language, which will put upwards of a $20,000 pay bump for wildland firefighters, uh, occupational change from forestry technician to wildland firefighter, um, which will be awesome. And uh, there's also a piece in there, I think they might have taken the monetary allocation out, to, but the mandatory requirement to stand up mental health programs and comprehensive well-being programs. Um, and starting from Biden's speech a few months ago, the bonuses that folks are getting right now to bring them up at least to $15 an hour. You know, I'd say that was the tourniquet. The infrastructure bill is that transport to a next level of care. And then we're working um, with a couple members of the house right now on a, a bill that I would say is that recovery from your next level of care and exit from the hospital. Um, so that stuff's all exciting, but the infrastructure bill for those reasons, wildland firefighter specific, which that's reactive at this point, we suppress fires after people have seen smoke in the air and towns are being threatened or being burned to the ground. The proactive part of that is land management. And right now we have land management agencies with a fire problem, or we have fire agencies with a land management problem, depending on how you look at it. We have to manage the land proactively to get to a point where we don't need this robust suppression workforce. And all of it's interrelated and has to be addressed simultaneously. And I think steps are being taken to do that. Sarah, is there anything moving through Congress or at the state level? And you said you're a policy wonk, which I greatly appreciate. So you're keeping an eye on what happens in state houses as well. Anything that um, gives you some hope that some of these issues in terms of emergency management are being raised? I'm impressed like that Luke's pointing out the pay issue, but also mental health becoming sort of mandatory um, feature of, of services for wildland fighters. Anything like that for emergency management? Not at the moment, no. I think that we will see some 
some benefit though from the infrastructure bill because ultimately mm. if we can use it, when you rebuild old crumbly infrastructure, it's less likely to disintegrate out from under you. And so when you, we call it mitigation, uh, and but when you can do mitigation, it makes the job of the emergency management people easier because right now mitigation money, like you might as well, it's like a, it's like a fist fight to get mitigation money. And a lot of places don't even try because it's so complex, even with brick. They, it's just incredibly complex and incredibly limited, and it's not worth people's time. And if we can just start funding those things and not having to have a fight over whose bridges are most important, if we can start fixing infrastructure as a whole, it does make our jobs easier. It gives people some breathing room to know that, oh, you know what, we were able to do earthquake retrofits on half the homes in our community. Now they won't fall down in an earthquake or they'll fall down less. Like it's, it, but these are long-term solutions. These are There's not a quick fix on the horizon for any of this. Though I will say there's clearly a recognition of the role that emergency managers can play. I have seen organizations open new jobs. I have seen existing organizations up pay. Um, it, it, it's it's not an organized effort by many means, but it's it is happening. Um, I just hope that it's not too little too late. I hope that we don't, I hope we can stem this brain drain and keep some of the talent here so that there's something, so that we're not starting from scratch. Like I really, like I love my colleagues and I want them to stay and make this profession better. Um, you only do that by by finding ways that they can be supported in their careers and that that comes locally. And so I hope that that happens. Colleen, I have to say that listening to Luke and Sarah reminds me why I could never do your job, because how we could take these stories and these imperatives and get that message across in a thousand words. Like I, I want to write 10,000 words after what we've heard today, but it is really important. I mean, again, just to come back to what, what you've been doing with your work, Colleen, and get you to react to anything that Luke and Sarah have said. I mean, this just has to continually be out there. These stories have to continually be out there. And they're fighting for public attention in the midst, just to come back to something we were talking about earlier, a complicated disaster calendar in a regular year in the United States. And now in the context of COVID, how do you break through and grab people's attention for 30 seconds to get them to read about this and realize that these are real people working hard and it impacts their lives as well? Yeah, I mean, to kind of bring it full circle, when we were talking about disaster anniversaries earlier, there was a point where that was really it, I think, for a lot of the coverage, especially on a national level compared to more local, um, you know, something would happen and you send out everyone and it's live shots as, as things are on fire, as sort of the dramatic moments are happening. And then the second that, you know, everything sort of starts smoldering, the media generally leaves. I do think we're seeing a shift in that to a degree. Um, you know, I, I think people are sticking around, but I do think it's become difficult to sustain that attention in the long term. Um, but I mean, you know, the fact that I was able to write an article about burnout among emergency managers, I don't know if that's something someone would have accepted from me a few years ago, because I, I think they would have said, mm -hmm. oh, you know, I give me doctors or firefighters only, you know, give me someone whose name is more publicly recognizable. So I, I hope that that indicates there's a bit of a shift. Um, 
in people understanding a bit more the importance of these roles. I mean, I, I think seeing people talk about the the challenges that federal firefighters are facing, um, there, there's been a, a I don't think there ever could be too much coverage, but I, I think there was a lot of national coverage around that, especially when President Biden was speaking about it. So I, I think the challenge really is keeping it sustained over time. And it's a really difficult challenge, but I mean, a critical one, because a lot of times it is for communities that are impacted by these events. I mean, it's not the first month always even that's the hardest, you know, there's, there's of course the devastation of having your community hit by a disaster of some sort, but it's that year on when you're just bogged down in the bureaucracy of trying to get that money of you're still not home and you know, things are never going to be the same and it's all really hitting home. I think around those times and that, to not have your voice heard at that time, I think is really difficult for people. So I'm hopeful that that's sort of a, a focus that the media can can take moving forward is recognizing as more communities are finding themselves in this place over and over again, that the coverage can't just be, you know, this happened maybe a year from now, here's an inspiring story. Those are great, but we need to also talk about what, sort of support these communities need in the long term. Um, and I'm hopeful we can start seeing more of that, but certainly it's something we could stand to see more of right now. Just as we're closing out, I want to remind folks that um, you can uh, catch Colleen Haggerty's newsletter at newsletter.colleenhaggerty.com. And maybe Colleen, can you give us a sense of coming attractions? What are you working on right now? Yes. Um, you know, I, I actually had a, a large response to that disaster anniversary post. Um, so some communities that I focus on in the past, as well as some that I've never talked about in my newsletter, I've had people reach out to me from nonprofits, you know, from emergency management perspectives, as well as individuals and politicians. So I have some of that coverage coming up in weeks to come. Um, on that front. And yeah, I have I have an announcement I was hoping to be able to make this week that I can't yet, but it'll be about sort of broadening my scope of what I'm covering um, with a bit of support. So very okay. moving forward. <laughs> okay, well, we'll watch for that. And Luke, in terms of um, people wanting to get engaged with the work of grassroots wildland firefighters, mm -hmm. how, how can they do that? Uh, check out our website, www.grassrootswildlandfirefighters.com. We have monthly uh, Zoom meetings to provide folks with an updates just on our pillars, legislative updates, uh, go through the website and any changes. And then we've got a, a pretty simple six-step six process to contact your local representatives, a list of the media um, articles that are out there, personal stories, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, I'd say that's that's step one. And then contact us if uh, you'd like to assist in the efforts. OK, Sarah, how can we help you? <laughs> Just tell the story like we one of the things that we have to get better at is telling our story. And Colleen has done a great job of helping us tell our story. But we can't we have to stop being the silent people in the background um, even if we individually can't tell the story, we need to find somebody to tell the story for us because that's how we make change. 
It's an honor to be with you all today. Thank you so much for, for making time for this conversation. I just want to remind folks you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls most weekdays live at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Tomorrow, I'm really excited to have Adia Benton, anthropologist, medical anthropologist on. We'll be talking to her. It's her return visit since last year. Uh, she joined me on COVID Calls very early in the project, so it'll be really great to have her back. Please do join us for that. And I want to thank my guests today, Colleen Haggerty, Sarah Miller, and Luke Mayfield for taking time out of their impossibly busy schedules for this conversation. Uh, we'll see you tomorrow at 6 p.m., everybody. Thanks to my thanks, um, Luke, Sarah, and Colleen for, for joining me today. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow, 6 p.m.